All right, well, we're going to jump into this this morning. This is part three of a series that's simply titled, I Am. Uh, it's not a declaration of the fact that I exist. That is, that is a title um, that God gives to declare who he is. Um, God declared this way back in the earliest parts of the Bible. In Exodus, when he revealed himself to Moses, he said, I am. I, I am. I exist. Uh, its essence carries with it the idea of, I always have been. I'm here and alive and present right now, and I always will be. I'm kind of above all, beyond all. The, all of these ideas are captured in this statement, I am. And then Jesus took on that identity himself. In John's gospel, um, he, as he often did when he encountered the Pharisees and began to speak some life and some truth and declare who he is, they got really angry because they assumed he was blaspheming when he claimed to be God. And he said, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And he took on that title himself. And so this series is kind of a discovery of who Jesus is, specifically through the lens of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Both books of the Bible were written by the same author. This is the Apostle John. John lived with Jesus, um, walked with him through life, saw him die, saw him risen again, and then preached the good news until his death. And so John wrote one of the Gospels, one of the stories about Jesus' life. And in his Gospel, the book of John, um, there are seven different I am statements of Jesus. There are seven different times where Jesus used uh, visual images or descriptive words to teach us who he is. And so last week, we looked at the statement that Jesus said, I am the vine. I'm the true vine. And how he's the source of life. And that, that in a very practical sense for us, what that means is that we were designed to be connected to God, to experience the fullness of what life is and what life has to offer. We were made to be connected to God. And the primary way that his life pours into us is through his love. And so in, in John 15, we just simply looked at how Jesus encourages us, when you're connected to me, you're alive and you're fruitful and you abide in my love. And it produces something. It produces joy, he said. Um, and then he told us, he was honest with us, if you're not connected with me, it's, it would be just like going outside and finding one of these branches connected to a tree and cutting it off from the tree and expecting it to stay alive. It's not going to work. It will die. It needs the life that comes through the roots and through the tree. And so that was the imagery he gave us. Um, and then in John's letter to, um, or in his book, the book of Revelation, there are two chapters where Jesus sends personal letters to churches. And Jesus intended them to be heard by his whole church everywhere, but he personalized them to specific churches in specific cities during that time frame. And so last week, we looked at how this letter was written to the Ephesian church, and they were faithful, and they were hardworking, and they trusted God, but they had lost their first love. They had lost that love relationship with Jesus. And he told them, you need to remember that. Remember my love for you. Tap back into my love for you. And he told them, you'll get to eat from the tree of life. And so that's where we were last week. This morning, um, we're going to look at the second statement that we're going to unpack during this series where Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. So if you want to join me, we're going to be in John chapter 11 is our primary passage this morning. And our, our two main verses are John 11 verses 25 and 26. 
So we're going to read these verses, and I'm going to give you some context of the story that is around them. And so in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus is talking to Martha, and he, it says that Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? He actually calls Martha to a place of action. And so here's this statement. Jesus is declaring, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. But this, this statement is powerful in and of itself. But when we understand the full context of what was happening around Jesus, it becomes not only powerful, it's even maybe a little bit scandalous if we really understand the full story. So let me back up a little bit. This, this passage is sandwiched in between John's chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so you can go back and read this for yourself, but I want to give you a sense of what's happening. Uh, Jesus' life and ministry, he, he, he lived just kind of, we don't fully know, but what we would think would be a relatively normal life till he was about 30 years old. And then at the age of 30, he began his ministry. And he traveled around and he preached about the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He raised the dead, as we're about to talk about some this morning. Um, he preached good news to the poor. And he did that for about three and a half years. So where we are picking up the story, it's the last few months of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. So if we go back to John chapter 10, Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem, speaking as he often did in public. And the Jewish leaders there, the Pharisees, um, get angry with him about some of the things he's saying about himself once again. And it says they picked up stones to stone him. And all of this took place, the scripture tells us, in the wintertime during the Feast of Dedication. Uh, this would be December. It's coming up. In fact, um, often we, we don't realize the fact that Hanukkah is in the Bible. Did you guys know that? It's the Feast of Dedication. It wasn't called that then. This wasn't one of the original Old Testament um, feasts. There's several of those, like Passover, that we've talked about, and we will again in the future. Um, but this one came about after Israel had been in captivity, and then the temple had been rebuilt, and some things had gone down, and you can, you can read about the history there. And so they celebrated uh, the Feast of Dedication, is what it's called there in John's Gospel in chapter 10. That's the Festival of, Life, of Lights, sorry, or Hanukkah. And so starting with that point, the Jewish leaders pick up stones to kill Jesus, and so he leaves town. He walks out of their midst, and a couple months go by, and he's kind of stayed away from Jerusalem, and now it's moving into late winter, maybe even early spring, and he's out ministering, and word comes to him that his good friend Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary, um, was really, really sick. And they were sending word for Jesus to come to, to heal him so he wouldn't die. And so Jesus actually stays where he is, continues ministering for a few more days, and then says, okay, we're going to go see my friend Lazarus. And the disciples had a few different emotions going on with this. First of all, they were confused because Jesus said, we're going to go wake Lazarus up. And they're like, Jesus, like I'm sure his sisters could wake him up. Or maybe if he's sick, like sleep would do him really good. And they didn't realize Jesus meant he had died. And I'm going to go bring him back to life. And so then Jesus plainly told them, that's what we're going to do. 
And so as they get ready to go, one of the disciples um, says, well, let's go with him and die too. Because the area Lazarus lived in was this, this little town called Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so his disciples are getting nervous. We're going back to the area where the last time we were there, they tried to kill you. This seems crazy. But Jesus says, no, we're going. And so he comes into town. He's getting close to Bethany. And we'll come back to it in a minute. But this, this statement that he made is to Martha as he is coming into town, getting ready to go to the tomb of Lazarus, where basically um, his burial is going on, his funeral is going on. So Jesus shows up at a funeral and says this to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Shortly after this, if you're familiar with the story, um, Jesus declares, Lazarus, come forth. That, that was weak. Let's try this again. Lazarus, yeah. And what happens? He does. I feel like every now and then I have to stop and say this. When we're reading the Bible, we have to decide right at the outset, am I reading fairy tales or am I reading a historical document that's telling me about real people who walked this earth? And if, if you believe like I do, that, that this word is true and it's alive, that means people were at a funeral service where the body had already been placed in the tomb and this guy shows up and says, open the tomb back up. And somebody actually did it. <laughs> somebody actually did it. Okay, we'll open up the tomb. And then this person says, hey, come out of there. I mean, how many people do you think were sitting there going, this guy is insane. This guy, like these are real people. They're thinking he's crazy. They're thinking he's probably insensitive, right? I mean, I can only imagine some of the emotions I'd be going through. But Lazarus does come forth and he lives again. And so people watch this miracle happen. Now, you'd like to think that it was nothing but a huge celebration. But you know what the rest of the chapter in John chapter 11 tells us? All those same Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who wanted to kill Jesus just a couple months before, now they really want to kill him. And in fact, it was this act of raising Lazarus from the, the dead that caused them to actually go through with the plot to kill Jesus. The scripture tells us from that time forward, they, they plotted and schemed how they could take him and arrest him and kill him. Because they viewed him as very dangerous. So the story goes on and a couple more months go by and now we're approaching April, springtime. And Jesus had, had gone out again to do some ministry and now he was drawing back towards Jerusalem for the Passover. And so on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover, he stops in Bethany. You guys remember the famous scene where Jesus comes riding in on the donkey and the palm branches are being waved? We call that Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Just a handful of days before that, Jesus comes to Lazarus and Martha and Mary's house to hang with them in preparation for the Passover. And so he shows up and what takes place is that Mary gets out this really expensive jar of, of ointment. It was myrrh. And she comes and she begins to pour it on Jesus' feet. And the scripture tells us whether she realized it or not, she was anointing him for his coming death with myrrh. It was, it was um, an oil that would be like a preservative for a body before you would put it in a tomb. And Judas, one of his best friends, gets furious. You're wa she's wasting money. We could have sold that and put it in the money bag. This from the guy that was stealing from the money bag. 
Are you getting a sense of the picture of what's going on here? I, I want you to see the reality of what's transpiring during this period. And now because Lazarus is walking around living and people are telling the story, the scripture even goes so far as to tell us these Jewish leaders decided we're going to kill him too. And so they plotted to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus. That was their plan. So all of this atmosphere is stirring. And it's interesting, in this atmosphere of people wanting to kill Jesus, in this atmosphere of his close friend dying, Jesus declares this statement to Martha. Let's look at it one more time, a little more intentionally now. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who's still in the tomb. We know how the story ends out, but she doesn't. She doesn't know how it was going to end. She's mourning the loss of her brother. She's even upset with Jesus. She's already told him, if you'd just been here, you could have healed him. We saw you heal other people. You could have done something. You came late. And it's in the middle of that context that Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, notice Jesus doesn't say, um, I can resurrect people. He doesn't even say, one day, I will be resurrected. He says, in my essence, in my core, I am resurrection and life. I'm resurrection and life. Think about this. Jesus is saying, I make dead things come back to life again. And he's saying this while a beloved friend and family member of Martha is right there in the tomb. And then he, he not only says, I'm, I'm resurrection, like I bring things back to life. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I keep things that way. I can resurrect dead things and I can keep them alive perpetually, eternally. He's declaring this about himself. And then he says to her, listen, if you believe in me before you die, yet you'll live. In fact, you really will never actually die. You will continue living. This is a radical statement. This isn't just, hey, God cares about poor people and we should care about poor people. That is a powerful statement. And it's something we should do. It's not even just repent of your sins and be made right with God. That's something powerful that we're meant to do. He is declaring something radical about himself, and he says, I am resurrection power, and I am eternal life. In my essence, that's who I am. Martha, do you believe this? Before you see me raise Lazarus from the dead, I'm asking you, do you trust me? Do you believe this? So I want us to just slow down for a minute and consider some of the implications of what Jesus is saying. Can we just do that for a second? Can we sit with this? Think about this. Some of the implications of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Number one, it means that Jesus heals now. It means that Jesus heals now. Think about this. He wasn't just comforting Martha and then walking over the tomb with her and laying some flowers at the grave and going back to the house and having a period of mourning, he intended to intervene in their present current circumstances to bring life where it seemed impossible. Jesus heals now. 
He heals now. Do you believe this? See, that's, that's the crux of the matter. I can be told this information, but the question is, do I believe that Jesus is resurrection and life? Do I believe that he heals now? Do I believe that he'll show up today and he'll heal broken things in my heart that don't feel like they could ever get better again? That he physically brings healing. That he can, he can change things. He wants to change things. He does change things. Do I believe that Jesus heals now? And so when he raises Lazarus from the dead, it goes from being a concept or an idea, it's reality. Martha watches him do what he said he could do. This got radical and real for her. And so one of the implications of Jesus being resurrection and life is that he can heal right here, right now. Let that truth sink into your heart. He says this to someone while they're in the midst of the most difficult moment they faced, the loss of a beloved family member. Jesus wants to speak resurrection life into our darkness. And he invites us to grapple with that. Will you consider it? Will you wrestle with it? Will you make this your truth, your reality? Do you believe this? That's the invitation of Jesus. Now, I just have to say that while Lazarus rose from the dead, guess what eventually happened to Lazarus? Is he still walking around the earth right now? No. So Lazarus did eventually die. What happens to all of us? I got news for you. You're probably, you're probably going to die. Unless Jesus shows up before that moment happens, you're going to die. I'm going to die. This is a reality that we all face. And so the second implication of this is, is simply this. If death is a reality we all face, then again, I need to grapple with this statement of Jesus. Death will come. Do I believe that he's the resurrection and the life? Now, the reality about death is that, listen, it may come early and surprise us. It may come quickly out of nowhere, unexpected. Death may come late. I don't know if anybody's ever struggled with watching like a grandparent or something with Alzheimer's where they just, they kind of begin to lose their sense of, of reality and who they are. Sometimes it can feel like it comes late. It comes slowly, painfully, but it will come. And Jesus is present in the midst of the sudden things that surprise us or that, that slow grind of death. Jesus comes in the middle of that to invite us to believe this reality about him. I am resurrection. I am life. I want to speak even into your darkest moments. Here's the third implication. When Jesus says, I am resurrection, that means something about him. And I realize this, this might, the statement that I'm about to make might seem really obvious and we're so familiar with it, but it means that Jesus died. Why, why does that matter? It matters for this reason. I hope you can let this sink in a little bit. The scripture makes it clear to us that Jesus can relate to us in every way. The Bible talks about that. We have a great high priest who can relate to us. Do you realize that Jesus had to face his own death 
choosing to believe that he would be risen again. Think about that. I think too quickly we just go, well, he's God, he knew. He came to earth and he lived the life that you and I live. And we know that he experienced the things we experienced. The Bible says um, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew what it was like to grieve and to suffer loss. Think about some of the things he had faced. He'd faced pain. He faced abandonment. He faced the death of loved ones. I realize the statement we're focusing on this morning is him telling Martha on the resurrection and the life, but when he approached Lazarus' tomb, what does the scripture say he did? He wept. He wept. Not he cried a tear. He wept. It, it hurt him. <laughs> it, it hurt him to see his, his friends suffering it hurt him that his friend Lazarus had died. His friend had gotten sick and experienced death. And it broke his heart. Jesus had experienced this stuff. Jesus faced his own death. And as he's on the cross and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what he's saying is, I trust you. I believe. I believe that I'll be raised from the dead. He wasn't half dead. He wasn't hanging out in the tomb just kind of like, Sunday morning's coming. He's dead. He suffered and died, and he entrusted his life into his father's hands. He had to grapple with this reality. I believe I'm resurrection in life. I believe that the father intends to resurrect me from the dead. And so Jesus can relate. He's not this cold, callous God saying, well, just trust me, there's an afterlife. Just trust me, you'll all be okay in heaven one day. Jesus himself had to face the reality of going to his death and believe that he'd be raised again. And now he invites us to have that same trust. And the beauty is, because he's resurrection life, because he rose again, because people saw him walking the earth and ascend to heaven, we have good news. That's what gospel means, good news. At its core level, the reason we're gathered here this morning, the reason we go to church, the reason we walk with God is because there was really good news in the newspaper when Jesus rose again on Easter Sunday morning. It's a message about reality. There was a guy who was dead. He had been crucified. He was claiming to be God. He came back to life. He showed himself to a lot of people who recorded that information, who gave up their lives because they believed so strongly in what they had experienced. And they said, we not only saw him come back to life, we saw him like float up into the sky. This was news to them. This was reality to them. It's something that they witnessed. And so the good news this morning is this. Yes, Jesus can heal now. And yes, he can relate to us when he doesn't heal. Because we, we all, there are some prayers that won't get answered this side of heaven. We're going to die. But even in that, there's hope because he is the resurrection and the life. He himself experienced dying and raising again. And now he says, look at that fact. Look at that reality. I rose from the grave and now I want to tell you something. I'm here to share it with you. You can have eternal life in me. Do you believe this? This is the central message of the gospel that Jesus is resurrection and life. 
And so simply he asks us to do something with that information. Do you believe this? Okay, so in, in the context of all of this, in the context of who Jesus is as the resurrection and the life, he writes a letter to a, a, a worn down, um, hanging in there, holding on, going through really difficult times church. It's the church in Smyrna. So let me give you a little bit of background and then we're gonna look at the letter that was written to the church in Smyrna. You guys with me? Yeah, okay. So the town of Smyrna, if we wanna go ahead and put the map up there, we can do that, it's already there, okay. <laughs> I need like my own little monitor or something so I know what's back there. Um, all right, so um, this town of Smyrna, it's, it's in Turkey. We mentioned last week when we looked at the map that Ephesus was in Turkey. All of these, all of these cities, where these churches were established are in what is now modern-day Turkey. Smyrna is now in the, in the modern city of Izmir. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but don't quote me on that. Izmir. Um, but Smyrna, you can see it right here. Oh, man, the map cut off a little bit. Okay, well, just for context, the island of Patmos, where John was in captivity and wrote the book of Revelation, is right here. So he's off the coast and all of these cities were kind of right there, either on the coast or not too far inland. And so, um, in fact, if you were to read through the order, the sequencing of the letters that John wrote, they follow this curve. The first letter was to Ephesus, then Smyrna, then Pergamum, and it goes on down the line to Laodicea. And so it's almost like somebody was gonna be on this circuit taking these letters, and all seven of the letters were meant to be read at all seven churches. So it's like, hey, Ephesus, read all these letters. Here's how you're doing. Here's how your brothers are doing. Here's how your brothers and sisters in Christ are doing. Okay, now on to Smyrna. Hey, here's the letters. Y'all tracking with that? So we're at the second location. So Smyrna, uh, it was a, it's a city in Asia Minor situated off the sea there. You can see it. That's 40 miles north of Ephesus, just to give you a sense of the scale. Um, Alexander the Great intended to kind of re-found, re-establish this older ancient city. Um, he didn't quite finish that plan, but one of his successors completed it in B.C. 290. So about 300 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, this city was completed, this rebuild. This was an incredible city. The original location was on the north side of that little gulf there. And now Smyrna, this, this new city, was established on the southern side. And the idea was to establish a connection to the east for trade. And so stuff could come from, from Greece or then Rome later and could then go back and forth to the east. So it was meant to be a really important town. Um, this town became very loyal to Rome when the Roman Empire took over. They built a famous temple there and they remained incredibly loyal to Rome throughout. Um, because of that, this city was given kind of a high consideration or high place. In fact, Ephesus, um, Smyrna, and Pergamum kind of like duked it out for like the chief city in, during the Ro Roman Empire in this area of the world. But Smyrna was by far the most beautiful. By far the most beautiful. Um, they had made all of these incredible paved streets. They had these beautiful groves. They even they had suburbs. Smyrna had suburbs. It was just this beautiful place to live. Now, what's interesting about Smyrna that we're about to read is they were a very faithful church. They suffered a lot, but they stayed faithful to Jesus throughout. And what I find interesting about this, they were commended for being faithful through suffering. And to this day, 
this city in Turkey has a higher population of Christians than they do Muslims to this day. I find that to be a really cool legacy that this church left some 2,000 years later. In fact, it's even kind of jokingly referred to, or I don't know if it's jokingly, but it's referred to by the people of Turkey as infidel Smyrna because there's so many Christians there. What a cool legacy. These guys are like this outpost of faith and trust in Jesus in the midst of a region in an area that's becoming predominantly Muslim. So that's the legacy. You feel like you got a little bit of a sense of Smyrna? Can you picture it? Pretty coastal town, really beautiful place where there's some nice suburbs. You'd, you'd want to live there. You'd want to retire there. Okay? Really pretty place. I say that in contrast to what the Christians were experiencing in Smyrna. They were heavily persecuted. So, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, and look how Jesus identifies himself, who died and came to life. He writes to encourage them in their suffering and reminds them that he's the resurrection and the life. It says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They were, they were very persecuted by, um, by Jews in that town. And the Jews in that town were trying to curry favor with the Romans. And so the Jews kind of worked with the Romans um, to persecute the church in Smyrna. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and to the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus identifies himself in this letter to encourage them, I'm the one who was dead and came back to life. It's one of the only letters in this section in Revelation where the church is not, um, is not called out for anything. They're, they're given nothing but encouragement. He doesn't tell them anything they're doing wrong. He just tells them to hold on. What encourages me about this is that Jesus um, does two things. He does two things. And I, and I hope you take note of this. I don't know your state this morning. I don't know what condition your life is in. You might be in an awesome, joy-filled season. You might be pumped about Thanksgiving and all the fun plans this week and life is good. You might be struggling. You might be suffering. You might be going through your own tribulation. I want you to know something. Jesus would say to you, I know. I see. I get it. I'm with you. Look at the things he lists. He's honest about their current condition. He says, I see that you're in tribulation. I see that you are experiencing poverty. I recognize that you've been slandered. You've been slandered. It's not just bad enough that you're down. You're being kicked while you're down. You're being insulted while you're down. You're being slandered. You're suffering. You're imprisoned. You're going through a season of testing. I see all of that. I see your current condition. But then he reminds them of their eternal condition. He reminds them of eternity in the midst of their present sufferings. 
And he says, listen, hold on, be faithful unto death and you will receive the crown of life. To him who overcomes, you won't even face the second death. You won't face judgment. You're going to experience life eternal. Guys, I just have to tell you, heaven becomes really important to believe in and hold on to when we are going through seasons of struggle and difficulty. Remembering that this life is temporary, that what Jesus has won for us, the victory that he's won for us, that's what lasts. That's what echoes on through eternity. And we're, we're told to hold on to that. One of the things that I think is really interesting and significant is this. The town Smyrna, it's the exact same Greek word for myrrh. Think about that. His suffering church that is being persecuted to the point of death, the very place that they are living is called myrrh. Myrrh, the oil that, that preserves, that protects the dead body. The same oil that Mary poured out on Jesus' feet as he was heading to his death. Even in the name of the church, there is a promise that they will be preserved through their suffering. Man, I wish we could grab hold of that for ourselves. God, that in my current situation, in my current condition, in the suffering that I face in this world, God, you promise to preserve me through it. You promise to get me through. You tell me that you're holding on to me as I'm holding on to you. Yes, God, you may intervene right now in my circumstances to bring new life where it seemed impossible. You may do that. You're capable of doing that. I'm trusting you to do that. But God, even if you don't, I thank you that I am holding on to you and you are holding on to me and your promise is sure. You are faithful. I'm believing you for eternal life. I'm believing you for resurrection power. Is anyone in here familiar with Fox's Book of Martyrs? Y'all heard of that, that book? Um, he records a lot, of, a lot of the history of people over the, the life of the church who've been killed for their faith or been persecuted for their faith. One of the people that's talked about in Fox's Book of Martyrs is this guy named Polycarp. It's a really weird sounding name, Polycarp. It's almost like fun to say. I feel like when I was five years old, it would have been really fun to just say that word over and over again, Polycarp. It actually means much fruit. It's kind of cool. It means much fruit. This guy was one generation removed from the early disciples. It was believed that John the Apostle, who we're reading this morning, directly discipled this guy. Polycarp became the bishop or the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And he lived to a pretty old age in this town. But as he was getting older, he was killed for his faith. And I want to read you a little bit of this. This is an edited down version from Fox's Book of Martyrs. So just, just listen to this. This is about the persecution that took place under Marcus Aurelius, a Caesar around AD 162. And it talks about this guy Polycarp. He was the venerable bishop of Smyrna. He was carried before the proconsul and condemned to be burnt in the marketplace. The proconsul urged him, saying, Swear and I will release thee, reproach Christ. So he's trying to get him to, to deny Christ. And Polycarp answers and he says, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. This is a guy living in intense persecution and suffering, and he says about Jesus, He has never once wronged me. 
How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? At the stake to which he was only tied, but not nailed as usual, because he had assured them he would stand immovable. Think about that. He's like, I'll just stand here in the fire. You don't have to, you don't have to stake me to it. it it's, it's reported that the flames encircled his body, and yet they didn't touch him. He didn't burn. And so the executioner on seeing this was ordered to pierce him with a sword. And when his blood flowed out, it was so great that it extinguished the fire. Think about this. This is, this is a dude who believed what Jesus said. He believed. If he'd been standing there next to Martha that day, when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection of life, do you believe this? He would have been like, yep, sure do. He believed in the power of eternal life in Jesus. That is available to us. Now, many of you and maybe all of you are sitting here saying, I've, I've already said yes to that. I've accepted the eternal life that's available in Jesus. Great. Are you allowing that reality to sustain you through the trials of life? Are you letting the eternal God who is resurrected carry you through your difficulty? I want to just give you a couple of thoughts in, in closing here. How do we apply this? How do we apply this? First of all, my hope and prayer is that every single one of you would accept this truth, that you would accept Jesus as your savior personally, that you would hear him saying to you, do you believe this? And you'd say, yeah, sure do. Yes, that we would accept it. And I want you to know that's available today. It's available today. You can say yes to him today. Secondly, I want to encourage us to trust him for healing and rescue today. Today. We believe this so much that we intentionally take time out of the service every week to say, there's people who will pray with you because we believe Jesus answers prayer. I don't believe he's a slot machine where I put coins in and pull the lever and I automatically get what I want, but I believe he loves me and he answers prayer, that he touches people's lives. Let's live like that. Let's also hold on to him through unanswered prayer and suffering because it's inevitable. We will face death. And so let's hold on to him through that, remembering eternity, remembering the reality of heaven. Let's live in view of eternity. And then finally, the last thing I want to say, and I want to read a passage to you, so this will stand out. Let's share this good news. Let's tell people that Jesus lived on this earth, that he was the son of God, that he died, he was buried, he rose again, and eternal life is available. Let's tell people that. You know, one of my favorite passages in the scripture is the description of the early church found at the end of Acts chapter four. Are you guys, some of you familiar with this? Um, you know, after the day of Pentecost and a bunch of people have gotten saved, the Bible just begins to talk about what they were experiencing in day-to-day -day life. And it's, it's held up as an ideal. Like if only church today could be like that because we see them living in unity. We see them sharing their possessions, taking care of each other, having meals. 
And I've just found it interesting over the years how we miss out on the middle verse that all of that hinged upon. And so I want you to see this maybe in some, some fresh eyes this morning. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was a sense of unity and taking care of each other. But look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. They experienced the power of God and the grace of God because they sat around remembering and talking about the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. We, we are very familiar in our church circles with the story of the cross. We're familiar with Jesus crucified, and it's central. It's vital. He paid for my sins. I get forgiven. Too often we stop there, and we relegate the resurrection for one day during the year called Easter, where we're going to go find little eggs hidden and maybe go to church that particular Sunday. We, Easter should be every day. We should be living in view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's alive. He's well. He's in heaven. My loved ones that have gone before me, they're alive. They're well. They're, well. they're in his presence. And I get to go there one day. And so whatever the, the present trials and circumstances I'm facing, I invite that Jesus to come down and bring resurrection power to heal and touch right here today. And I hold on and believe him through it all for the eternal life that I have in Jesus. That in the grand scheme of things, I'm going to be with him forever. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I want to personally invite you this morning. If you have not said yes to Jesus, if you've not put your faith in him for eternal life, please come see me. I'm going to hang out up here for a few minutes after church. Come see me. I want to pray with you. I want to talk to you about him. If you just have questions, if you're not ready to, to make some determination, but you want somebody to talk with you, man, there's no question that's too small or too dumb or too silly. I would be happy to sit and share with you. Let's talk about it. For those of us who have said yes to Jesus, let's live with the reality that his resurrection power is available to us today. Let's encourage each other with it. Let's pray for each other with it. And let's hold on in the midst of whatever we face. Can we do that? Yeah? This is good news. This is good news. Jesus is alive. He's risen from the grave. Scripture says, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? We have overcoming life in Jesus. Let's let that reality sink down into our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you that you sent us your son, that he died and he rose again for us. Jesus, thank you that you invite us to experience that life in you. Thank you that this life gets extended on through eternity as we put our faith in you. Jesus, would you remind those, those followers of you that are here, remind us of this truth and this reality and God, if any of us have not said yes to your truth yet, God, would you, would you cause to be drawn to you? Lord, the scripture says that you draw us with cords of loving kindness. 
God, your heart towards us is love and mercy and goodness. Thank you that you invite us into eternal life in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.